Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everybody. Please make your way back to your seats as we begin. Good evening. For those of you who uh, don't know who I am, my name is George Tilden. I'm part of the men's mentorship group here at Calvary Chapel, and uh, that's led by Pastor Tim. And uh, tonight I'm going to be teaching on Hebrews chapter 11. So uh, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. While you're turning, it has been said that um, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And I think that's true. And Hebrews 11 has a lot to offer us. It's got a lot of um, commentary on Old Testament passages and uh, what we call, you know, heroes of the faith and stuff like that. But it's also an overall commentary on one very short and powerful statement in Scripture. The just shall live by their faith. And we're going to take a look at what that means for us as believers tonight. What does it mean for the just to actually live according to or by their faith? Uh, Before I do that, though, I want to go before the Lord in prayer, so please join me. Dear Heavenly Father, I I come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and um, I thank you, Lord, for giving your Son for us, Lord. I thank you for dying, for taking the full penalty of our sin upon yourself, Lord, because without that, none of this, this wouldn't matter. We wouldn't even be gathering here, Lord. Um, I pray, Lord, that this word would be uh, led by you, that you would be the one who speaks, that no one would notice me, no one would hear what I have to say, God. I pray that you would be heard and that um, this word would change us, that we would be molded into your image, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the just shall live by their faith. I I think it's somewhat of a twofold statement, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. On the one hand, Jesus told us in John chapter 3 that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So why do we need to be born again? The Bible tells us that because of sin, because of the fall of man, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So all of us, I I usually, if I'm sharing my faith with somebody, I'll tell them we're all alive physically and dead spiritually. So we need to be born again. And it's by faith right? The just shall live by their faith. It's by faith that we come alive again. We enter into life so the just lives by their faith. And so that's one side of the coin. And the other side, I, I think, is more uh, for believers, right? Those who've already trusted in Christ for their faith. How is it that we live by our faith? And it's that our faith in Christ and in his word, who he is, what he has done, that governs our decisions, right? It governs our thoughts, our words, our deeds, big decisions, small decisions, right? All those things govern our faith. And so with that, we're going to jump right in, uh, starting with verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So right from the jump, the, uh, the author tells us that uh, faith has substance. You know, faith itself is not something tangible. It's not something we can hold in our hands or grab. We can't throw it into our suitcase, take it to the airport with us. It's not tangible, but it always produces something tangible. It's been, it's been said, and I, I also agree with this, that it's faith alone that saves. 
but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. Jesus said it's by their fruit that you will know them. So faith, faith saves us. Works don't save us. Works are evidence that that salvation has taken place. Right? And uh, verse 3 tells us that um, faith lays the foundation for what we believe about the origins of life in the universe, right? The world. You know, and I, I think for some of us who've been in the faith a long time, maybe we've grown up in a Christian home, it's ingrained in us to the point where we don't, we don't really even realize it, but it takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe that it's God who spoke the universe into existence. You know, the world can't receive that. You know, that's, that's by faith that we receive that. Um, moving forward. Yeah, the Bible, the Bible says that it, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And I think the same could be said even for the creation account. Perhaps some of you may have an experience having shared your faith with an atheist or somebody who believes that science answers all the problems of the universe and they probably may have scoffed at you one time or another. I know I've experienced that, but it takes faith to believe that God created the world and the universe. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. And here we see that faith produces obedience. Right? Obedience is on God's terms. It's not on our terms. We're the offenders. We severed our relationship with God through sin, and the offender doesn't set the terms of reconciliation. God does, and he does that in the gospel. So we also know that partial obedience is disobedience. You know, sometimes we'll come to God and we want to obey him in one area and not another. It doesn't work that way. And some people may think, well, what does the story of Cain and Abel, what modern application does this have for us? So I, I think it has a lot of modern application. You know, anytime you've heard somebody say, well, I'm a good person, you know, I, I, I do this, I don't do that, you know, um, I was at the coffee shop and they gave me too much change back and so I gave the change back, I'm, I'm a good person, I'll get to heaven, I'll get to heaven on the basis of my own good works or whatever. Anytime you hear that, that's sort of offering to God the sacrifice of Cain. You're coming to God on your terms and not the terms of the blood. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. So God set those terms. He has a prescribed way for us to come to him. And when you come to him some other way, it's just not acceptable. God is not pleased with our righteousness. He's pleased with the righteousness of Jesus that he actually accredits to us by faith. Verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith produces diligent search. Now, when I was putting this together, this was the part that probably convicted me the most. Because, you know, I think we have in the back of our minds this idea that, well, work requires time and effort. 
my social life requires time and effort. This requires time and effort. And why don't we take that and we transfer it all the time to seeking God through prayer and through reading the word? And one of the things I, I would really, I want to take away and I want you all to take away is to take an inventory of how much time we, and effort we spend towards these other pursuits versus how much time and effort we spend towards seeking God. Because at the end of the day, that's what produces eternal fruit. You know, only what's done for Christ will last. In Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen, it says, you will search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. So weigh those things. How much time do we put into X, Y, and Z versus how much time we put into actually seeking God and knowing him better? Verses 7 through 12. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in a land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of, uh, with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him being as good as dead, was born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Faith may require you to take risks. And God may put something on your heart. And perhaps it's something that the world may deem impractical or just not the right thing to do. And there's some ground rules. There's some rules around this. First of all, God will never tell you to do something that's in direct contradiction to his word. And the more we know God's word, the Bible, the written word of God, the more we're going to be able to discern what God is telling us personally. And I think sometimes it's tempting for us to put the cart before the horse in that sense. You know, we want a revelation. We want God to speak to us. And oftentimes God is telling you to obey your last standing orders, which is in his word. And when we, when we go to this and when we obey that, he'll give us further instruction. There's also safety in a multitude of counsel. You know, uh, we, it's good to go to pastors and elders, people who've been in the faith longer than you. People in the faith, not your college buddies from back in the day, not, not those guys, it's not godly counsel. You want to go with people who've been in the faith and who've proven themselves trustworthy, right? And, and that's where you get godly counsel. So after you've rightly divided the word of truth, and after you've sought godly counsel, and you know that these things, whichever, whatever it is that God is putting on your heart maybe to do or say or whatever the case may be, then you take the step out in faith. Verse 13 all these died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland or a country. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from whence they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faith develops an eternal perspective in us. And that eternal perspective develops over time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul the Apostle tells us that the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, I think that sometimes it's easy to glance over how much faith that takes to, to, to really believe. You know, we're not living for this life. This is not our home. To the world, this is all there is. You know, we have hope, an eternal hope, on the horizon when we, when we leave here. The world doesn't have that. And I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that we, we, uh, we have that to look forward to. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Well, faith requires sacrifice. Now, God may call you to give something up. That could be any number of things. It may be a passion. It may be something you enjoy doing. It may be a, an ungodly relationship. It, it may be a career. I know, I know I've heard many, many testimonies, I'm sure you guys have too, of people leaving careers that were lucrative, that they made a lot of money doing for the sake of the ministry. It takes faith. You don't, you don't make that level of sacrifice without a great deal of faith. That same faith may require us to believe in spite of confusing or unexpected circumstances. You know, and, and obviously Abraham's a perfect example of that. I'm sure Abraham was probably met with a lot of confusion when the same son through which God had promised him all these things, he then tells him, yeah, take him and bring him up to Mount Moriah and offer him up to me. That takes a great deal of faith. Verse, uh, excuse me. Verses 20 through 22. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So faith empowers us to trust God with the people that we love. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I'm sure all of us have some unsaved loved ones that we're hoping to come to Christ, and by faith we trust them, well, we trust Christ, we trust God with the outcome of that situation. We pray for them and we witness to them, but ultimately that outcome belongs to God. And in the case of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all three were moving by faith when they pronounced blessing over their children. They were about to die. They had no 
influence over the outcome of, of those blessings. They, they, they had no other choice but to trust God with that outcome. And it's by faith that they did that. And one thing that we should know about faith, and this is something that I think happens oftentimes in, in Christianity, it's easy to confuse faith in God with faith in an outcome that you want from God. And it's an important distinction to make. Right? And, you know, faith is not this mental exercise where you're, you're focusing on the outcome that you want so, so hard that you, you kind of, it's almost like some people think they can manifest the outcome. That sounds a lot more like metaphysics than it does faith. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Right? When you put your faith in God instead of the outcome that you want from God, you're releasing the outcome. It, it should, it sh- there should be a release. There should be peace that comes with that. Not this mental strain. Now, Jesus said you can move mountains with a mustard seed of faith. Well, why? You can move mountains with a mustard seed of faith because the size and the strength of your faith isn't the focus. It's the object of your faith. So if you pray to God and you're, you're focused so much on the object instead of the God you prayed to, you're actually holding God to a desired result. So it's an important distinguish, disting, uh, it's important to distinguish that. Verses 23 through 27. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses when he had become of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he, per- I'm sorry, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. Faith in Christ produces separation. The word holy actually means to be set apart for God's purposes. The Bible even says, come out from among them, my people, and be ye separate. Right? And that separation will inevitably produce godly persecution and godly suffering. And to some extent... uh, Suffering has become a, a, a dirty word in, in the Christian faith, but God glorifies himself through suffering. He glorifies himself through suffering just like he does in victory. And Jesus was the perfect example of this. It says that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is forever set at the right hand of God. He was the perfect demonstration of glorifying God in suffering as well as in the victory of his resurrection. So we need to be prepared to endure that suffering. In verse 27, it tells us that Moses did not fear the wrath of the king. So it begs the question, when is it appropriate for a child of God to do the same? Now, the Bible tells us in Romans 13 that the powers that are in place, the government powers that are in place, are ordained by God, and they are. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those powers are always going to do things 
that are in line with Scripture, that are pleasing to God, and, and you certainly don't need me to tell you that. You can turn on the news, and right away you're probably viewing some politician or some leader in some government doing or saying something that God would say, uh-uh, no, not that. But those powers are still ordained by God, so we shouldn't just willy-nilly disobey whatever law that you know we think should be disobeyed. So here's what I believe the biblical rule of thumb is. Obey the law of the land until the law of the land tells you to disobey the law of God. And that means that the government doesn't get to tell us when to gather, where to gather, how to gather. You know, in 2019 and 2020... Uh, many people in the church, both here in America and even abroad, they were deceived and coerced, or both, into not gathering to worship the Lord. And this was done under the idea that it's not safe to gather. Well, if you look at the first century church, (laughs) safety and convenience was never a prerequisite for gathering to worship the Lord. Um, So, Why am I saying that? I'm saying it not to harp on the past. We can learn from the past, but going forward, we have to understand that we're living in an increasingly antichrist culture. This culture is going in a direction where we may see similar adversity in the future. I'm not trying to scare anybody. This isn't a prophetic word or anything like that. But we as believers have to be prepared with the biblical knowledge and the courage and the faith to say, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. The governor's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. The president, he's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. I didn't expect to need this this much. Verse 28. By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. Throughout Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, we see types and shadows, you know, uh, foreshadowings of, of things to come. God speaks to us that way in the Old Testament, and this is a very clear example, the Passover. As some of you may know, the story of the Passover, they took the blood of the Lamb and they put it over the doorpost so that whoever had the blood of the Lamb over their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over them and their firstborn was not taken. And just like that, today, we who are covered in the blood of Christ, because the blood of Jesus cleanses from every sin according to 1 John 1.7, we have victory over death just like they had victory over death. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? That's only through the blood of Christ. 
in verse 29, the author speaks of the crossing of the Red Sea. And Paul the Apostle makes an interesting um, comparison in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He actually, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that Israel was baptized unto Moses when they crossed the Red Sea. And I think that Red Sea crossing kind of has some foreshadowing elements of, of baptism. And I'm going to talk really briefly about baptism. Baptism in, in, in Scripture, it, we, we see it as a, a, a biblical step of obedience, and it symbolizes something. The word baptism comes from a word baptismo in the Greek. It means to be immersed or submerged. And that's important symbolism because you're being buried and you're being raised with Christ. That's why you're put under. Now, what's important to understand is that baptism is not something that is salvific. That means it doesn't result in salvation. It is something that you do professing to the world that you belong to Christ. Right? And some of the evidence to that, because there's, there's, there's sects out there that believe that in something called baptismal regeneration. And there's a couple issues with that in Scripture. First of all, the thief, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Another thing is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul the Apostle says, I came not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, in Romans, Paul calls the gospel the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So it doesn't really make sense for him to then come on the scene and say, well, I came not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't make any sense. But scripture does, also doesn't treat baptism as optional. It does treat it as a mandate. But what is salvific is repent and believe the gospel. Now in uh, verse 30, we have the, um, the case with Je- uh, Jericho and, and, and Joshua. And I, I think Joshua's name is, is <laughs> it, it, it's the same name in Hebrew for Jesus. It's the name Yeshua. Now if that doesn't point to Christ, I, I don't know what does. I think that's really what we call a, a God wink because the Israelites didn't get into the promised land through Moses and the law. They got in through Yeshua, right? And finally, in verse 31, we see Rahab, who wasn't Jewish. She, she, was, a, she was a Gentile, and she demonstrated her faith through her receiving the spies with peace. And so with that, I think we see one of the first foreshadowings of salvation being available to the Gentiles in the future. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens or the invaders. And here the author gives us a list of accomplishments or mighty acts. And these mighty acts require courage. And I want to address what I think is a common misconception about courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. 
I think we confuse the two. I think we confuse fearlessness with, with courage. I know sometimes I do, right? Courage is when we, by faith, take action, even in the face of doubt and fear. You're going to experience fear. You, we are all fallen. We're all dealing with this sin nature. You're going to experience fear. You're going to experience doubt. David is in this list. And David wrote in, 50, in Psalm 56, verse 3, What time I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. So we know David even experienced, the guy who conquered Goliath experienced fear. So we know that courage is not synonymous with fearlessness, but courage is when we take action by faith, when we obey God in the face of fear. The presence and fear of fear and doubt can lead to sin when we allow it to dictate our response. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. So if you allow fear to dictate your response, if you allow fear to cause a sin of omission or commission, then you've got a problem. Verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Well, so much for the faith and prosperity gospel. The name it and the claim it and the blab it and the grab it. The author here will not tell you to decree and declare. He won't tell you to sow a seed and reap a harvest. Instead, in similar fashion to how he has been, he reminds us that this life is temporary. And so are the sufferings that we experience in it. There's power in that. There's power in knowing that your suffering has an expiration date. That's a consolation the world doesn't have. And that's something that we should remember, both when we're enduring our own trials and when we're witnessing, when we're sharing our faith with others. Know that they don't have that same consolation to them. Again, I said this before, This is all they have. And again, going back to suffering, yeah, that that faith in Christ and the salvation that he offers, that empowers us to endure even the harshest of trials. Suffering glorifies God. And in John 21, we see Jesus reinstating Peter after he had denied him three times. And Jesus kind of alludes to how he's going to die. But then the Bible says something interesting. It says that Jesus said these things to him, signifying by which death he would glorify God. Right? So God is not just glorified in our victories. He's glorified in our sufferings. And throughout church history, we faced a number of false gospels that seek to kind of remove that element of suffering out of the picture. 
I already talked a little bit, I, I joked around a little bit about the faith and prosperity gospel, but there's another one that's been rearing its head in, in the church recently, the, this idea of a social justice gospel. And there's nothing wrong with social justice in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with doing good things. In fact, your witness for Christ should be accompanied by helping others. The problem is when you take a cause and you make it central. The gospel is central. These other things can be products of the gospel. They can come alongside the gospel. But the gospel itself is the central message. And if we compromise that, we run into trouble. Okay? Jesus did not come for social justice. Now, when he returns, he will establish perfect justice. He will rule and he'll reign from Jerusalem on the throne of David. And as the Bible tells us, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. But Jesus came initially, the first time, to handle a sin problem. You and I had a beef with an eternally holy and pure God. Something we couldn't handle. We couldn't take care of. There's nothing we could do to solve this problem. Jesus came and he solved it. Perfectly and forever. And he grants us that righteousness. And this is really the, the failure of these, these other Gospels, which I don't think are any Gospel at all. They, again, they take something that's perhaps a product of the Gospel and they make it central. Verse 39 and 40. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So here the, the author talks about the, the saints of the Old Testament being, not being made perfect. That word for perfect means complete. And uh, this has been, this has been um, said before. Um, I, think, I think even Pastor Tim may have said this at one time or another, but the term body of Christ, we see that term predominantly as a, a New Testament church label. And that's part of what it is, but it's, but it's an incomplete definition of that label. The, um, the body of Christ also includes saints from the Old Testament. And that's what the author is kind of alluding to here in verse 40, that we all, we're all one body together with those Old Testament saints. All right, so that includes us here in the New Covenant and them in the Old Covenant. And they're saved by faith, just like we are. Looking forward to the cross, we're saved by faith, looking back at what Jesus has done. So, bringing things full circle, what's the alternative? At the beginning, we said that we're saved by faith, right? We, the just, live by their faith. We're made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. We're born again, right? And so what's the alternative to the just living by faith? Well, the answer is that the alternative is the unjust dying in unbelief. And if you're here today and you've already trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you've trusted in him for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins, if you, if you walk out of here with anything, ask yourself, how is my life a demonstration of that faith? How is my life demonstrating on a moment-by-moment -moment basis that I am living according to my faith. Remember we said that 
for those who've already been saved, the just living by their faith is our faith in Christ governing our decisions, governing our words, governing our thoughts, right? That's what we live by. That's what we look to. Is this okay to say? Let's see what the word says. Is this okay to think? Is this okay to do? Big decisions, small decisions, our worldview, right? How is my life a demonstration that my faith is governing it? And if you're here today and maybe you haven't trusted in Christ for the salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins, my question would be, what are you trusting in? The Bible makes it clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us to repent and believe the gospel. The word repent actually means to change your mind. It means to think differently and to reconsider. Right? So in the context of this, what that really means is I'm, I'm forsaking all hope in anything else that could possibly save me. I'm, I, I forsake all hope in my being a good person, my being a good Catholic, my being whatever it is. I turn away from that, and I trust fully in what Jesus did. He paid the penalty for my sins. And he achieved the righteousness that I need. You'd have to be perfect in thought, word, and in deed from the moment you were born to the moment you die to get into heaven on the basis of your own good works. Jesus achieved that. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the very righteousness of God in him. So it's the great exchange. Jesus gets my sin. He nails it to the cross. I actually get his righteousness by faith. It's imputed or accredited to me simply by believing and turning from my sins. And so if you're someone who hasn't done that, I urge you in the strongest possible terms not to leave here without doing that. Make a decision today to follow the Lord, to put your faith in Jesus Christ and him only. Not in any sacraments, not in any deeds, not in any good works. And uh, with that, I, um, I hope this challenged you all today, and I, uh, I know it challenged me. Um, I pray that you would you know, go forth and God would perhaps use this to, again, conform you into the image of his son, Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I, uh, I come to you again in Jesus' name, Lord, and I, uh, I thank you for this night, Lord. I thank you for guiding me, guiding what I, what I say, Lord God. And uh, once again, I just pray, Lord, that you would take this and use it in all of us, God, because we can't change on our own, Lord. We don't have the power to be like you. We need your Holy Spirit to work in us, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would do that. And I pray that this would just be one, just another step in that process, God. I thank you and I praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.